You're listening to a sermon in our series, Fully Alive, as we go through the book of Colossians. Visit LinworthRoadChurch.com for more. Hey, before we jump into things this morning, I want to uh, introduce a good friend. And uh, he is a, uh, a partner in, in our family of churches. He uh, is from, we first met him when he was, he and his wife uh, operated an orphanage in Nepal. Uh, since that, he has worked in Singapore and Malaysia. He is now working in Charlotte, and uh, he's here this weekend. He's, uh, his ministry right now is Bhutanese Refugees, and there are about 30,000, 35,000 Bhutanese refugees here in Columbus that Utam is working with. Could you stand, Utam, please? Have a warm Limworth welcome. And uh, we're really honored to have him here this morning. And if you'd like some more, well, first, I'd love you just to greet him after the service and uh, give him a warm Linworth hug and welcome. And, uh, and then if you're interested, and, and please do ask him about his ministry. And uh, he'd love to tell you a little bit more about that. So welcome, Utam. Uh, let's see. David said this morning that we matter to God. That's good news, right? You matter. Unless you multiply yourself by the speed of energy by, of light, then you energy. How about that, huh? A little shout out for all my engineering science friends. Okay, all right. Let's move forward, perhaps. <laughs> hey, some work better than others, right? Some some things work better than others. Well, this morning we are opening a brand new series of talks called "Fully Alive." We're going to try to answer the questions, how do we come alive? How do we live life as it was meant to be? No doubt some of you feel like you're simply existing. Uh, just walking through life kind of dead. How do we become fully human? The church father, Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. It's beautiful. And it's part of our mission statement. Linworth exists to help the spiritually lost and wounded become fully alive. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to work through the book of Colossians. And if you're new with us, this is generally what we do. We work through one of the books of the Bible. God reveals himself through the Bible in very personal ways and through real life situations. And in this case, we learn about God through a letter to a group of Christians living in the first century. The letter comes from a Christian leader, um, the apostle by the, the name of the apostle Paul. Now these Christians lived in a city called Colossae. It was a region uh, called Asia Minor. It's what is modern-day Western Turkey. Colossae was some ways like our cities here. It was a melting pot of many cultures. Many various ethnicities lived there. It sat in a very strategic pace, uh, place along a river by a great military and commercial road. So undoubtedly, it was a very significant trade center at the time of this writing. And you might ask, well, how did Colossae get connected to the Christian story? Well, here's what happened. The Apostle Paul 
spent three years in a city about 100 miles from Colossae called Ephesus. And there he lectured every day about the Christian faith, and many people became Christians. It says that the word of God, the Christian faith, spread through all of Asia. Now, a man named Epaphras, a resident of Colossae, may have been one of those converted through Paul's lectures. He was actually with Paul at the writing of this letter. Paul wrote this letter from Rome. He was either in prison or under house arrest. Epaphras was with him, and apparently he had given him some report about the condition of this church. And Paul writes a letter back in response, even though he had never been there. We have no record of him ever visiting this church. Based on what Epaphras tells him, he writes a letter back to these young Christians. Now, his report was mixed. There were some good things. The Colossians had a vibrant faith and community. But there were pressures from the outside. And these young Christians were being tempted to slide back into their old ways, into what was comfortable for them before they knew Jesus. There were also internal pressures as well. There were false teachers promoting a different kind of gospel. And they were making headway. Colossae was a spiritual smorgasbord. There were lots of options to get sidetracked from the gospel. Folk religion and even magic were influential. Well, as I said, Paul didn't start this church. We have no record of him even ever visiting. But we'll see right away that Paul has already cared for these believers through his prayers. Why don't you stand together, if you would. And let me read the first 14 verses from Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance with patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. You may be seated.
Well, amidst of all of Paul's gratitude and prayers, what seeps out from these first 14 verses is the identity, the new identity that Christ followers have, the way that they view and the way that they define themselves. It is an identity based on who they are, what they have, and what they will become through Christ. Again, these believers were suffering from amnesia. They were forgetting who they were, as if they were sleepwalking when they needed awakened. And that challenge is equally valid for us. If we forget who we are, then we will slowly drift back to what is comfortable. The way of life that we had before Christ. And that life may have been cruel. It may have been self-destructive. But in some way, it's comfortable to us. And so this morning, we as well need awakened. And so here's your outline. It is be awakened to who you are, what you have, and what you are becoming. Pray with me. Father, through the Spirit of Christ, will you open up our eyes this morning and ignite our hearts and speak to our affections And remove whatever might hinder us this morning from not merely hearing information, but letting, Father, your love impact our heart and impact us in a way that will all week long cause us to, in our hearts and in our affections, to come back to what you spoke to us this morning. Open our eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's the first part. Be awakened to who you are. Look at verse 12, if you would. Look at verse 12. It indicates that we belong to a kingdom of light. Okay? When we accept Christ, more happens than simply our soul being saved from heaven. Verse 13 indicates that we have been transferred into a new kingdom. Now, it's very interesting, this word transferred. The Greek verb here translated by this word, it describes the relocation of large groups of people, such as captured armies or colonists, from one country to another. You have been transferred. Before knowing Jesus, you were a part, I was a part, of the dominion of darkness. Now, there's no gray here. There's not like some spiritual no man's land. There are not blurred lines between these two kingdoms. We do not ooze into the kingdom of God. A transfer must take place. It is a decisive act of God to rescue us and to transfer us. 
God presses on the human heart. And when we say yes to Him, we become part of the kingdom of His Son. Christians belong to Jesus. And the realm are the domain that He governs. Let me illustrate. All of you are a naturalized citizen in the country that you were born in. That's the physical kingdom that you belong to. That is your identity, for example, as you travel from nation to nation. Your passport is what identifies you when you travel. Your passport says, as this one does, citizen of the United States of America, or it might say United Kingdom, or it might say India, or it might say some other place. But as Christians, we are a new creation. And we belong to a new community, a spiritual community, with Jesus as our King. It is not something that we can see. It is spiritual. But it is nevertheless real. Now this makes sense of verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. By the way, this is page like 983 in the Bibles. Look at verse 4 in Colossians 1. Verse 4 indicates that we are vitally linked to other followers of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are linked to other followers. So linked that we cannot separate our faith in Jesus with our love for His people. To believe in Jesus is to love His people. You know, knowing who we are, this is so critical. Friends, knowing who we are, it gives us a sense of permanence. It gives us a sense of rootedness, of being connected to Christ. I love this next illustration. There's a science writer named Hope Yarin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. But she shares an interesting fact about plants. Especially how a tiny seed starts to put down roots. The most essential thing for a plant's survival. She writes, No risk is more terrifying. So interesting. No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating. I've tried that a few times. It'll never enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. She calls taking this root a big gamble. But if the seed takes root, it can go down 12, 30, 40 meters. Imagine that. And the results are powerful. For example, a tree's root can swell and split bedrock. It can move gallons of water daily 
for years, much more efficiently than any pump invented by any man. If the root takes root, then the plant becomes virtually destructible. Tear apart everything above ground. Some of you have done that. Everything and most plants still grow rebelliously back from just one intact root. Isn't that amazing? And it'll grow more than once. It'll grow more than twice. It'll keep coming back. In our new identity as Christians, we take root like this in the soil of Christ's love. It's beautiful. This is who you are. Rooted in love. Connected to a vital community. And when that happens, friends, you cannot help but bear fruit. I'm telling you. When you are rooted in Christ and in His community, you cannot help but bear fruit. You will become a better husband. You will become a better wife. You will become a better parent. You will become a better friend. You will become a better employee. You cannot help but reap a harvest in your life and have an impact on others when you are rooted in Christ and rooted in community. This is who you are. This is who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter of a king. We have to reflect on who we are. Sons and daughters in a kingdom with a mighty king. Now, second point. We also have to be awakened to what we have. Verse 12 indicates that we have an inheritance. Now, when we say inheritance, we, if we're students of the Scripture, we immediately go back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, to an inheritance meant that you were given a part of the land, a part of the promised land. What is today? Modern-day Israel, about nearly 4,000 years ago. God gave to His people, the Jews, the promised land. Now, the New Testament says we also have an inheritance. And given the Old Testament example, you might ask for your inheritance to be maybe the backside of a mountain in Montana. Maybe you'd like that. Or maybe a white sandy beach in Florida. That looks real nice now. But if you saw this as your inheritance, you would be selling yourself way short. The Old Testament story points to, it doesn't conclude, it points to a final and greater reality for God's people far better than Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is what I would like for my inheritance. The final inheritance means, friends, if this is true, okay, if this is true, the final inheritance for believers means there is a country in our future far greater, far richer, far more significant. In this land, in this land, we are promised the healing of all of our wounds, the redemption of our 
souls. The renewal of our bodies. The answers to all of our questions. The final eradication of our self-centeredness. And community with God and one another in unbroken companionship and unhindered oneness. Not just equality, but oneness with God and oneness with one another. This is our inheritance. And all that, by the way, in the midst of dwelling in a land renewed from the curse of sin. Now, it's not an inheritance that you have earned. Okay? Think about the concept of inheritance. Does anybody ever earn an inheritance? Now, there are exceptional cases where someone gains or loses an inheritance based on good or bad behavior, but we tend to frown on that, don't we? We tend to frown on that. You receive an inheritance not because of what you do, but because of who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king. God has, look at the word, qualified you. When you come into Christ, He qualifies you. He makes you worthy to receive the inheritance because of your position. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, asks us to imagine, some of you don't have to imagine this, asks us to imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with a toy truck. Or maybe it's your husband playing with a toy truck. But either way, it breaks. And your eight-year-old is disconsolate and cries out to his parents to fix it. Yet as he's crying, his father says to him, Son, a distant relative you've never met has just died and left you $100 million. What will the child's reaction be? He will just cry louder until the truck is fixed. You know that, right? He does not have enough cognitive capacity to realize his true condition and be consoled. It's interesting, isn't it? This is one of these kind of stories. This is one of these mythologies that is strewn through all of our movies, isn't it? All of our books, all of our art and literature. It's one of these mythologies that we often don't realize what we have. In the same way as this little eight-year-old boy, you and me, we often lack the spiritual capacity to realize all we have in Jesus. This is the reason Paul prayed that God would give the Christians spiritual ability to grasp their incredible inheritance. Look at this prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. He says, I have not stopped thanking God for you, and I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in the knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He called, His holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. 
Keller finishes this by saying, in general, our lack of joy is as Shakespeare wrote, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in the stars, but in ourselves. We are like the eight-year-old boy who rests his happiness in his stars, his circumstances, rather than recognizing what we have in Christ. Friends, for us not to slip backwards in our faith, we need to be awakened to what we have. And let me bring up the third and final point then. The third point is this. We need to be awakened to also what we are becoming. What we're becoming. The people that we're becoming now. As we are in this process of living this life. And living in this age. Awakened to what we're becoming. Paul is going to urge us throughout this book. Not just to fulfill a list of religious duties. Not just to create. Hey here are the 72 laws you must follow in order to become a moral person. Rather, he's going to try to help us see first who we are. That we are new creations. That we have been resurrected with Christ. And giving us a picture of what will become in the future reverberates like a boomerang back into who we are today. This is how it works. When in prayer... When reading his word or hearing it preached, if our hearts are open, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit realigns our desires and ignites our imaginations. We can see ourselves becoming truly different. Not just rearranging behaviors on the outside, but changing on the inside. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, that picture can actually make progress towards reality. Look at verse 11 in this Pauline prayer. Notice the resources that God makes available to change us in verse 11. And how Paul piles on superlatives like throwing logs on top of logs on an already burning fire. Till the point is dangerous. Look at what he says. Being strengthened with all power according to the glory of his might. You see, we attain this new life first. Not by trying harder. Not by resolving more firmly. Not by creating more lists of to-dos. Not by putting more pressure on yourself. But it is by faith. It is by faith believing who we are. Believing what we have. And believing what we are becoming. Now listen. You must realize that I am much more like you than you think. I've tried to persuade you of that and convince you of that through the years. You don't realize Sunday to Sunday how absolutely weak and 
ineffective and, uh, you know, I feel as I approach these things, I'm much more like you than you realize. I experience the same kinds of temptations that you do. And they sometimes make me feel like I have another person growing inside of me. I sometimes picture myself like the giant in Jack the Giant Slayer. With You ever see that movie, Giant's Got Two Heads, you know? One body with two heads. I feel that way sometimes. Many temptations for me revolve around loyalty. Putting myself ahead or my comfort ahead of others or of obligations. And in experiencing temptation, often my first inclination is to feel self-disgust and self-reproach. Turning inward to scold myself saying, I shouldn't think that way. I shouldn't feel that. Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this? As I continue the verbal berating, next is the inner resolve. Stop it. Just stop it. Stop thinking and feeling this way. This is not me. Lie. (laughs) But I know me. I know... I've known me for 56 years and I know what I'm tempted with and I know where I have failed and I I can't say, yeah, this is part of me. What I am tempted with is part of me. All the while in this fighting going on inside my mind, not getting any better, not moving from the wrong desires. Why? Why am I not moving in the midst of that verbal fighting? Why am I not moving from the wrong desires? It's because I'm still operating in the power of the natural man. I am still operating under the power of the old self. I am not living in the power of new creation and new community. And how can I escape that back and forth? Here's how God helps me. First thing. We do to escape that back and forth, that verbal thing going on in our heads is by first telling the truth and saying, yes, this is what I'm like without Christ. This is who I am. This is the way I am without Christ. This is my natural self. And this natural self cannot and will not improve on its own. It will not make any progress morally on its own. I got to first just say that's true. And it's not pretty. But then secondly, not looking inward, but gazing at Jesus. Looking at the character of Christ and seeing His beautiful, perfect character. And His perfect, complete righteousness. And I acknowledge that, no, I cannot attain that, Father. I cannot attain that perfect righteousness in this life. I can't. But He is perfectly righteous. And if I am struggling with disloyalty, for example, not by looking in, but by seeing his loyalty and seeing how loyal he is to me, despite my weakness, something happens then when we live by faith. When we live by faith, it begins to give us a picture, a pathway A way to step forward. A way to stop and to wait and to admit 
I can't change myself. And then worshiping him for his unwavering loyalty to me. And then in worship, receiving his grace, receiving the strength of the might of his glory. And now moving forward in the new creation, in the new kind of person that God has made me to be. With his grace, freer and more persuaded than ever to become like him. What we are becoming through faith is captured by Paul's prayer beginning in verse 9. Look at this verse, verse 9. And I want you to imagine what your life could be. This is what I mean. This is the life that God wants us to imagine. This is what Paul was praying for. What they could become. By the way, this is a prayer I have prayed for you often, church. I have prayed this prayer often for you. I have prayed this prayer often for my children. Um, Life group leaders, here's your application. Here's a prayer You can pray for the members of your life group. But look at the differences that could happen in our life if these prayers become reality. Number one, lacking purpose and direction versus being assured in the will of God. Imagine your life if it was assured and confident in God's will for you. How about this one? Driven by self-gratification versus bringing pleasure and glory to God. Imagine your life Your little simple life bringing pleasure and glory to God and being freed up from being driven day to day by self-gratification. Thirdly, imagine your life bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work. Versus never having a positive impact on anybody. Not your spouse, not your child, not your co-worker. But imagine a life where your life is bearing fruit in every circle, in every realm that you live in. That's God's will for you, by the way, friends. You may be experiencing disappointment and struggle, but here's the thing. It is God's will for you to bear fruit. You may not see it at this point, but it is God's will for you to bear fruit in every realm where you set your foot. We can go back to the Old Testament, this idea of fruitfulness. It is brought brought to the new. Again, it doesn't mean we won't have disappointment. It doesn't mean we won't have failure and setback. But it's a matter of perspective. When you are rooted in the soil of Christ, when you are rooted in vibrant community, you will bear fruit and you're going to bear fruit in every aspect of your life. This is God's will for you. Fourthly, a life of knowing God only as a name versus feeling very close to God. Feeling connected to God. Fifthly, a life defined by bitterness versus imagine a life enduring difficulty with poise. Again, I have translated Paul's prayers here into into simple statements, but you can anchor every one of these in this prayer. And finally, do you have a life marked by anger or resentment? Or can you imagine a life filled with gratitude and joy not dependent on circumstances. This is what Paul was praying for these believers. This is a picture, imagination, of what the Holy Spirit will do in your life as you sit before Him, as you talk with Him, as you're in union with Him. 
God will begin to ignite an imagination around these things. And then he'll come on the back end with the power of his Holy Spirit and give you grace to actually begin to walk and make progress in that picture. Now, I want to share a story. Bearing fruit can happen outside the walls of the church. And it can happen through your life work and through your calling. You don't have to be a pastor to bear fruit. Someone who would have appreciated this message this morning and what we are becoming was Branch Rickey. Branch was a young student and coach at Ohio Wesleyan in the early part of the 20th century. And there he encountered the ugly outcome of prejudice. And inspired by his faith in the reading of Scripture, God planted in him a desire to make a difference. And this seems like a good story to tell, as tomorrow we remember Martin Luther King. This is, by the way, told by Jamie Crawford on CNN. Here's the story. I had never heard this detail before. On April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson became baseball's Baseball became pro baseball's first black player when he de- debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But there's an amazing story of faith and courage behind Robinson's entry into baseball. Branch Rickey was the Dodgers baseball executive who eventually signed Robinson. Rickey's pastor was Wendell Fifield from the Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in Brooklyn. This church, by the way, was one time pastored by Henry Ward Beecher who had a history of working with the Underground Railroad to help free slaves. While Ricky was trying to decide if he should sign Jackie Robinson, he paid a visit to Reverend Fifield. He barged into the pastor's study and told him, Don't let me interrupt. I just want to be here. Do you mind? That's not yet happened to me. I'm waiting for this to happen sometime. According to eyewitness reports written by Fifield's wife, June, The two men passed the time without words. The pastor continued his work, and Ricky energetically paced the floor, stopping occasionally to look outside the pastor's window. For 45 minutes, he continued pacing, pausing, pacing, and then pausing. Finally, Ricky broke the silence by pounding his fist on the pastor's desk as he shouted, I've got it! Got what, Branch? The minister asked. June Fifield said that Ricky finally relaxed on a chair and told his pastor, this was so complex, so fraught with so many pitfalls, but filled with so much good. If it was right, then I just had to work it out in this room with you. I had to talk to God about it and be sure what he wanted me to do. I hope you don't mind. Wendell, he said, I've decided to sign Jackie Robinson. Then Ricky straightened his bow tie, donned his hat, and left the room as he said, bless you, Wendell. In a couple of interviews from 2011, people who knew Ricky reflected on this story. Ricky's grandson said that when a well-known journalist told Ricky that all hell would break loose when Jackson took the field, Ricky quietly countered, I believe all heaven will rejoice. Also, Jackie Robinson's widow, Rachel, had this to say about Ricky's need to pray about the decision. 
He knew he was going to be pretty well isolated in making it. So he needed all the strength he could summon up to be able to take the step. Prayer allows us to hear from God and fires our imaginations. Looking to God and His resources, being awakened to what we can become, painting a picture of what we can do for Him, and bearing fruit in our world is the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Wake up to who you are, to what you have, and to what you can become. Finally, in closing, in verse 14, verse 14 reveals the way God brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. I described in my own journey a truth. In my own journey, I described in so many words a journey, a a, a truth spoken in the Bible. And the truth is this. We are all slaves to something. Okay? I don't use that term lightly. I'm not trying to make a comparison necessarily. But you and I, you and me, are all slaves to something. I'm a slave to something. You are a slave to something. Something or someone that you give unwavering authority to in your life. Something or someone that you give absolute allegiance to. We are built this way. We are built to worship. And if we worship self or a person or a thing or an idea, it will lead to slavery. Only worship of God. Worship. Only giving God ultimate allegiance. Only giving God our ultimate loyalty. Only giving God our ultimate love will bring true freedom. And with it, what will blossom is our true humanity. A man or woman fully alive. Without Jesus, I am a slave to my own disloyal, self-first thinking and acting. Without Christ, I cannot break out of that cycle. In ancient times, a slave could buy his freedom. He could redeem himself if he could come up with the price. And Paul uses this picture to describe what he has done for us. Christ, through his death on the cross, paid the price needed to redeem us, to free us from our slavery. Saying that sins, our sins, will no longer be a factor in how he relates to us as Father. He sets us free to become his sons and daughters, to possess a great inheritance in the age to come, and to have access to him and his Holy Spirit to experience salvation in this life as well. If you have never received his forgiveness. Receive it and begin this morning. Pray with me. Father, I don't know what all needs you 
desire to meet this morning. I don't know what all gifts you desire to meet this morning. I know that my friends come here, Father, just like me, struggling with temptations, struggling with a desire to be a better person, a better friend, a better father, a better husband, a better spouse, to be more loyal, to be connected to others in a holistic way, to abandon selfishness and to grow in love. And Father, a war wages inside of us, keeping us from those things. Help us this morning, Father, to recognize the resources that are available to us, the might of your glory, strengthening us, giving us endurance with joy, giving us perseverance and patience to hang in there when prayers haven't been answered for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years or more. To learn how to joyfully give thanks when things are falling apart. To live a life that's really pleasing to you. Father, will you help each and every one of my friends to figure out their next step and to truly grasp who they are, to truly grasp what they have, and to truly grasp what they can become. Help them to understand the wealth that's already theirs. Help them understand the community they already belong to, the identity they already have. And may we all, Father, be rooted deep in the soil of Christ's love. And now as we respond with worship, bring the healing and the word that we need. Father, let us give back with our hearts, our resources, our energy, our affections, given back to you, even in this moment while the gathered church meets. We come in Christ's name. Amen.